Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the old adage, publish or perish. But first, we wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping. And Judith, you've been doing an awesome job maintaining our Instagram presence. And we've been really thrilled to hear from listeners around the world. And so recently you posed a query or a survey about self-care. So we thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about what you've learned. Thanks, Erin. I appreciate that you're always uh commenting positively on the Instagram. I try. Um, I, after the last, after the episode on toxic productivity, I kind of, I asked our listeners what self-care priorities they have, what non-negotiables they have, because we talked about that. I had sort of talked about coffee a little bit and you had mentioned the shower. Danielle said the same thing. And so I was interested in other people and what they prioritize. Coffee was clearly the winner in that question. A lot of people wrote back and said coffee. We had some other really great ideas too. The shower came up again. And then one person said that they like to go for a walk every day, which I think is really great. I try to do that. That's always my goal, but I'm not very good with implementing that. It's interesting for me, having grown up in Germany, there's a lot of push for people to go outside. And I never really had that urge to go outside every day growing up in Germany. Uh, Once I moved to the United States, it was one of those other things where I felt relief that I didn't have to uh, hide from other people, that that was not a thing that I really particularly enjoy doing. But I, as, as I'm getting older and as I'm having the kids, I really do, I really have started appreciating the outside time a little bit more. And then another suggestion that we had, or another thing that one of our listeners emphasizes is a daily meditation practice, which I also really really appreciated and the suggestion, I appreciated the suggestion. And that's something, again, that I've also tried to implement into my daily life. Again, for me, it comes down to the cup of coffee because I just don't tend to make time for the walk or the meditation. But earlier in the spring, one of my favorite podcasts that I like to listen to had a little mini series on meditation, mindfulness meditation. And it was, she put out a five to seven minute mindfulness meditation every day for like three weeks. And it really helped me figure out some techniques and learn how learn the basics of meditation and figure out how to really sort of bring it into my day. She had some really good um, she had some really good suggestions for how you can implement it into your day to day life throughout the day. And so that's something that I have also been working on. I I've mentioned before that I struggle with sort of being present in the moment. A lot of times when I'm like nursing my daughter before I put her down to sleep, I'm already going through certain things in my mind, like my next step. When she once she goes to sleep, I'm going to go have a cup of coffee and then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do, you know, fill out this spreadsheet and then I'm going to look at this proposal when what I should be doing and what my job really is at that time is to nurse the baby. And they notice when you're not fully present and then oftentimes it takes takes longer and it it just gets more frustrating. And so I've been using some of those skills from meditation where you're sort of just bringing your mind back to the present and to focus on certain sensations to really keep myself present in those moments where I where I am. People say that that talk about meditation or what I've what I've heard a lot about meditation practice is just that it's like a muscle that you can train. And so the more you do it and the more you implement it throughout your day, the easier it becomes to be more present in your day. Another really big issue for self-care that comes up a lot is getting enough sleep. Uh, as adults, we're supposed to get about eight hours of sleep. That's something that not always that I don't always do either because there's just um there are different reasons why sleep is evasive at times, especially when you have a nursing, when you when you're nursing a baby, but also at other times. Erin, um, you talked a little bit about putting off sleep sometimes, and then you said you found an interesting article that seems to speak to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So again, right after our toxic productivity episode aired, I had mentioned seeing something or a post about this idea of putting off going to sleep and. So like, I don't even know if this was like the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, you know, that frequency illusion. Once you happen upon some small piece of information, you start to see it everywhere. And I felt like this was how it was when I was thinking about sleep. And the term is revenge sleep procrastination. 
And I read a little bit more about this in an article by Aaron Bunch. This was in wellandgood.com, which is just kind of like a website dedicated to thinking about mindfulness and mental health and all that. She quotes psychotherapist Daryl Appleton, who states there isn't really a proper psychological term for this behavior, but the motivation behind it's simple. It's control. When we don't feel like we can control our days, we compensate by exercising control of our nights in order to feel less disempowered. And this certainly speaks to everything that's going on in our lives in this pandemic where we feel like we have so little control over where we can go, what we can do, what's safe, what should I be doing? And so um, a clinical psychologist named Amy Darmus also agrees. Uh, she says that it's sort of difficult to feel as though your life is not your own. And it's a quote, when everything you do is about someone else's needs, it might sometimes feel like it's worth sacrificing some sleep. The sound of silence is a beautiful thing. No boss, no kids, no interruptions. And so that really spoke to me, this idea of like you're putting off sleep until the very last minute because you just enjoy that time that's just for you. And I know this probably does not play into your world right now because I know that when I was a nursing mother, it was constant interruption. You know, whenever I tried to have that time or go to sleep, I was interrupted a lot. That kind of reminds me too of the advice that people give new moms that they should sleep when the baby sleeps. And that was always my least favorite advice because I always thought to myself, well, when the baby sleeps, it's the only time that I have to myself. I don't want to spend that time sleeping. And so I have the same tendency where I don't necessarily, I don't usually sleep while the baby is napping. I just recently got to the point where I have been so tired that I literally will fall asleep while trying to do these other things. And that's kind of what tells you, you know, it's, it's not working. It's just not working anymore. I have to go to sleep now. And so, yeah, it that definitely resonates with me because, I mean, the baby is about 10 months now and it's just this like cumulative sleep deprivation where I've gotten to the point that I cannot stay awake and do something other than maybe watch a show but I just don't enjoy watching shows enough to stay awake. And the things that I do enjoy doing, I fall asleep while I'm doing them. And so I, my, my sleep deprivation has forced me to, has forced me out of that procrastination, if you will, out of the bedtime procrastination. But I definitely hear you on that. It's definitely something that I have done and usually tend to do a lot as well. To sort of circle back to what you're saying about going outside and taking a walk and these sort of non-negotiables, I was thinking when you were talking about that, that we really need these now more than ever. And that idea of going outside for just a little bit every day, I think that's a very important one for those of us who are kind of working exclusively from our home offices now just to get outside yeah. for a minute because I'm feeling really like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm so happy I can work from home, but I think there's a lot of reports and this might be something we can look into later. Just this idea of like, okay, we're working from home. Now what? Because I know I'm not the only one that's like feeling more and more isolated. This idea of like going outside. Um, I like that German approach. I think that's important to get some sunlight, to just be outside and just get out of the same space. Um, yeah. And moving, right. Moving your body. Right. Right. Like that's um, so important. Yeah. And yes. the more, now that we don't have the commute and we don't move around the hallways, we don't have to walk from the car to the office and things like that. Like where does movement still happen unless you go outside and you make yourself move, right? That's a really good point. When we were back in graduate school, you know, the campus that we went to was so huge and I sort of took that for granted. I actually hated it at the time, especially right. the semester that I was pregnant because it sometimes it could be a 15 minute walk from your car to whatever building you were teaching at. Yeah, but that was actually probably really good for me because that meant I was getting like at least maybe 20 to 30 minutes of walking in every day, which, you know, isn't a ton, but it's better than what's happening now. So these are all great ideas. And thank you so much for the folks that are engaging with the Instagram posts. I think this is a really it's another really great way to connect with our colleagues and giving us some really good food for thought. So Today, we wanted to talk about something that both Judith and I are pretty well versed in and actually quite experienced in, which is the publishing world. And we've all heard this term publish or perish. This was kind of a commonly uttered phrase in the hallways of our department. But like, what does this even mean? What does this look like across the disciplines? And is this still an accurate phrase? And Judith, what was the thinking behind this? Or like when they talk about publishing, what were we supposed to be publishing? And when was this supposed to be happening? Right. Those are excellent questions, Erin. The recommendation that we had originally when we joined, when we entered grad school was to have two articles 
accept it for publication at reasonable journals in our field by the time that we graduated. So there's a lot to unpack there, right? There's the two chapters, which I have said in the past, I think a good way to think about that is to have one chapter from your dissertation published and then one cha- one additional piece of writing that is sort of connected to your dissertation so that there's a coherence in your research and, and publication profile, but it's not exact it's not another chapter. Um, once you get to having two chapters from your dissertation published, it will become harder and harder to find a publisher that's willing to publish the, a revised version of your dissertation after you graduate. Having these accepted for publication by the time that you graduate requires you to send out drafts at least a, a year ahead of time. So uh, it's important to note that you, they don't have to be published at the time that you hit the job market. I just went back when we started talking about this episode and looked up one of the books that we read for that graduate seminar where we talked about all of these things. Um, And the book is by Gregory Colon Semenza. The book is called Graduate Study for the 21st Century. This is what I'm going to kind of refer to a little bit throughout the episode. I will give one major caveat, which is that the book was originally published in 2005. And then I have a revised and updated edition from, I believe it's 2010, that has just a little bit of an afterword addressing the 2008 financial crisis. So I think what's really important to keep in mind is that this book was published before, or most of it was written before we hit these multiple uh, recessions that we've gone through over the last 15 years and that have hugely impacted academia and how it's run and how the job market works. So that being said, I think that the two article recommendation is sort of the bare minimum today, most likely. And that, um, that that's definitely something to think about as to how, how to get these two um, research articles out. If you are interested in a research position after you graduate. For those listeners that maybe aren't located in the United States, and I'm not sure that the distinction is necessarily clear. In the United States, there's different types of institutions, and they're usually classified into the research universities, which we refer to as R1. The positions that are available at those universities usually come with a small teaching load, two to three classes per semester, or even fewer, and a high research activity. Then there's small liberal arts colleges. Those are small college campuses that focus particularly on the liberal arts. They usually come with a relatively high teaching load and some expectations about research, but not a whole lot. And then there are community colleges that those are often our two-year schools. And so the the teaching jobs that are usually available at those schools require almost no research activity, uh, but have a very high teaching load up to four to five classes a semester. So knowing which of these is most interesting to, to you helps you sort of emphasize particular things in grad school. Now, if you believe that, you know, you will be pursuing those research positions, then it does make sense to think early about how to get those two articles out at minimum. I know that there are other other voices have become more loud over the last three to five years that are saying basically with the saturation of the job market right now, it is likely that one might compete with other candidates who already have book contracts in hand for their dissertations because they have graduated uh, much less recently and have had time to build their resume, including sending out a proposal for a revised dissertation and getting that under contract. So I think that it's fair to say that the two article guidelines still can be considered a bare minimum for somebody who is headed in a research direction. Would you agree with that, Erin? Absolutely. And it sounds like we, the feedback we got last week from Danielle, our guest suggested that that isn't just in the humanities, but she had noted kind of working on getting things published throughout her career. And it seems like that probably helped her in her quest to, you know, landing that really awesome postdoc position. So I would say two articles minimum. And I know for people working in the STEM fields, like psychologists and scientists, you really want to aim for a high impact journal, those that are considered to be highly influential in the fields. And um, this high 
impact factor is the measure of the frequency with which an average article in the journal has been cited in a year. So that's interesting as well. These high impact journals are widely circulated and the articles are accepted as quality articles. So that means it's a high quality journal in that area. So that's something for people to consider as well. And so I really did try to aim for those two articles, but it felt really daunting to me at first, even though I had articles that I had published in magazines and trade publications throughout my past as a journalism major. So I want to sort of think about my own experiences as well as yours so that we can give our listeners some feedback and some advice. Yeah, absolutely. So considering that you had all of that publishing experience beforehand and having that goal of publishing an academic piece, do you think that there's a good time to start? Can it be too early to start? What's your experience with that, Erin? Well, so like I said, I had all this awesome journalistic experience behind me, right? And I'm like, I'm a good writer. That's what I did for a career field. And so I actually got really inspired in my master's program. And so I, I have two different scenarios I wanted to like share. Um, I just wanted to say that I remember getting feedback from one of my first professors in my master's program. And I was like, great, great, publish. I can publish. I love publishing. You know, I've published a million things. And he's like, well, Aaron, you might just want to wait. You know, this comes with time. It's a different sort of mode of writing. You might just want to like sort of like wait a little while before you send stuff out. But, you know, I was kind of eager as I, as I am. And so I sent out the very first essay that I had written for his class. And here's the weird thing. I sent it out and I got to revise and resubmit. And I remember telling him that and he was kind of like, wow, okay. And, and so I was also like, see, I told you, but here's the thing. I didn't really understand what they were asking me to do as far as revisions because I was still so new because that whole revision and resubmit process, that is something that you need to sort of have a lot of background as well. And so I remember kind of being like, yep, I changed a couple of tiny little things. I didn't really understand what was meant by revising and resubmitting. They wanted me to add some more substantial theory. Like I think I remember the word theory was even used and I just was like, literally, this is like the first class I had in graduate school in a master's program. And so I was all proud of myself. And then I, and they just said, oh, sorry, it's, you know, and so that was kind of a lot. I always, that one sort of haunts me. Because I was like, wow, man, I could have had something published in my master's program if I just would have been able to think about that. And maybe maybe I should have worked more with a mentor. Maybe I should have shared that. But I've done a lot of this on my own. And so I feel like sometimes it can be a little too early. Like a master's program, you know, there are I'm sure there are people that are like super gifted and that are really amazing individuals. But I felt like that was a little bit too early for me to be going out and sending things. And clearly, I misunderstood the notes for revision. Can you sort of speak to how people can use those various responses that one might receive from an editor? Like, is there a way to take a full out rejection and use that? Is there a way to, you know, use that revise and resubmit? Should we talk about the sort of different notices or feedback we might get from editors and how we can think through that in a positive way rather than, you know, falling apart, which is kind of what I did the first few times? Yeah, I think that's really important to think about the different responses that you're getting. So there's basically for journal articles, at least, there's basically five different sort of steps that you might hear back. The first one is a flat out reject. There's a revise and resubmit. There's accept with major revisions, accept with minor revisions, and then just a straight out accept. There's very, very, very few instances in which your article accept it right away. That almost never happened. I think in like two years of managing criticism, the journal, I don't think I saw that once that we just flat out accepted an article. Rejections are kind of what you have experienced. I had one of those two where I sent out a seminar paper and I basically got the feedback, this looks like a seminar paper, which I knew. And so I didn't take it all that hard because I knew that I had just sent out a seminar paper. That was more feedback than sometimes you will get. So like they must have sent it out. So sometimes within that, then there's two different options. The journal editor might just reject it flat out themselves, 
or they might take it and they might send it out and then the peer reviewers decide or recommend that the piece be rejected. So there's like two stages of that. And then depending on what feedback you get, there's different things that you can do with that, right? If you just hear this is a semi- this looks like a seminar paper, then that's not a whole lot of helpful feedback. So in that case, I would recommend going to an advisor or something, somebody who, who you can trust that can sit down with you and be like, okay, how can you turn this from a seminar paper into a journal article? What's actually the difference between these two genres? A seminar paper usually requires you a lot more than a journal article to show that you've done your homework. So those are the sections that you're going to want to scrape and replace that with something more sort of original where you're showing your individual voice. Another issue might be that the article is just not a good fit for the journal that you selected. So you might even try to just send out the same, well, you don't want to send out the exact same thing without making any revisions to it because you run the risk that the new journal will send it out to the same peer reviewer and the peer reviewer that will then be like, well, what? wait a minute, I already looked at this and, you know, and nobody wants to have their time wasted like that. So that's an important thing. If you do get feedback, address that. And then if it was a flat out rejection, you'll need to send it somewhere else. But again, think about, you know, is this the best fit for the journal or is there other other journals that might fit a little bit better? If you get a revise and resubmit, you'll likely get a good amount of feedback. The same with except with major revision. When I get uh, reader reports for my books and I have to return those to the authors, I always tell them, let this sit for a couple of days, read it very thoroughly and then put it away go outside, go for a walk, you know, do some yoga, play with your kids, whatever it is that you need to do, but just set it aside and let it sit. And when you return to it, it won't be as hurtful. It won't be, it, it always dings at first to get that negative feedback. We all want that positive feedback. We all want to, you know, have something accept it right away. But once you have a little bit of distance, you can really think about how is this going to help me improve my work? And it usually will. It's very rare that you get feedback that's just completely useless. Every once in a while, you'll get something that just gives you the paper or the project that the reader wishes you had written. But a good editor should be able to mitigate that a little bit and have a conversation with you about what can we actually glean from this report. And those are the things that you that you want to then sit down and address. And then you can kind of classify what kind of feedback you get, right? Some things are going to be formal. Some things are going to be very minor. They might require a change in tone or something like that. And some things might require, sometimes they might tell you, go look at books X, Y, and Z. So then you can make a list and say, okay, I'm going to read this one first, this one next, and this one third. And then you go through like your regular research process. So that sometimes you have to rethink your concepts. That takes a little bit longer too and requires some sitting and some, um, some processing and some revamping. And so those, if you can figure out sort of, okay, what are the different types of feedbacks that are in my reader report and how can I address them and split them down into small steps as much as possible, then it becomes more manageable and you can attack it one bit at a time until you feel confident that you've addressed most things. And there's always the option, uh, I wouldn't do this too much, but there's always the option of writing the editor and being like, this is this part of the reader report I did not address for X, Y, and Z reasons. If you have good reasons why some feedback is not useful to you, almost every editor will be open to that and will be willing to discuss that with you or accept your you know, expertise on the matter as well. So those are some strategies that I can recommend. Is there anything that you would add to that, Erin? No, I think you really have covered everything really well. And I think this would be a great primer for anyone who is in that mix, just that I did exactly what you said. And I've actually come to like the reader feedback because it's usually pretty straightforward. And just what you said, I had one that was on Jack Kerouac and I was talking about um, these like sort of queer moods and on the road. And my peer reviewer was like, I think you should see Lee Edelman and gave me the name of the essay. And I did. And I was like, yep, that really makes sense, you know. And so I was able to process that and sort of incorporate a little bit of that in there. And it was published. Same with the Carson McCullers. They said, you know, um, everything's pretty on point, but maybe you just want to look at Virginia Spencer's text. And it's a little bit older, but add that in. And so I did. And I felt like it was so straightforward and it didn't seem to be coming to me in a cruel or, you know, arrogant way. It was just like, this might help strengthen your argument. And so once I kind of got past, like you said, that initial, like, oh, there's, there's feedback. 
Um, <laughs> you know, ooh, uh, I, I'm able to work with it. And I think that's one nice thing is I had those negative experiences. But after a while, this is our job, folks. If we're in academia, we are evaluated. We are, you know, we're always getting feedback. So get used to it and grow from it. And I mean, I don't mean to sound blunt or callous, but I've cried. You know, I'll be honest. I'm a sensitive soul. I've had times where I just felt like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. I put so much effort into this, those early master's essays. And, you know, they weren't they weren't right. They weren't there yet. And that's okay. And I think sometimes some of us are so eager to get out there and prove ourselves. You have to, like you said, sometimes let this sit for a moment, take a beat slow down and then you can learn and grow and don't think of it as a negative. But I'm all, all I'm actually very thankful for those peer reviewers most of the time. Cause I'm like, wow, this is like way better than it was in the first draft. And you know, since we are both writers and editors, we're very well aware that drafting and revision is just like key to any process. So we've talked about the importance of trying to get at least two essays published in scholarly journals that are peer-reviewed and how that peer review process can be meaningful and helpful for scholars. If someone is still in graduate school and maybe new to all of this, what are some other ways and ideas to help them ease themselves into this publishing process? What other options are out there besides aiming for the peer-reviewed journal article? What are some maybe more low risk or low stake ideas for getting into publishing and why might some of these be good starting points for maybe people not in their master's program, but maybe early on in their um, graduate school career? Yeah, I think there are some other genres that we can write in that are an easier start. And two of those are the book review and then the encyclopedia entry. And we've sort of brushed on those in the past. I think book reviews can be a really, really great way if you can find an opportunity to review a book that's related to your field to start with a low stake assignment that allows you to sort of think through the ways in which this material relates to your research you would feed in a little bit of the knowledge that you already have, but you're, it's also sort of limited in scope. It has a very specific structure. There are lots of guides out there that can walk you through sort of like what the elements of the book review are. And then it's a it's a shorter uh, it's a shorter piece that it doesn't necessarily undergo a, a double peer review. And so that's a great place to start. And those are the, the way that you can come by those. I think. The ones that I have done, I came across because I had subscribed to different listservs where book review editors for journals would send out lists that said, these are the books that we currently have available for review. Please let us know if you're interested in any of these. And then you can kind of volunteer and pick some of those up. So the higher tier journals will likely uh, solicit peer reviews from an expert in the field that they're trying to get a book reviewed for. But there are some uh, some lower tier journals where you can volunteer, and those are great opportunities to sort of get a feel for how the whole publishing process works. Seeing the you know the proofs and the copy edits if the material is copy edited, and seeing how you work through that process with the one or two week turnaround and things like that. And then the encyclopedia entry is another great opportunity. And again, those are circulated via listservs. And those are just a great way to really uh, synthesize your learning. They give you an opportunity to sit down and think about what are all the things that I already know about my field and how can I break them down? It's almost like practicing for your essays for your qualifying exams. And so those are another great opportunity. They probably won't necessarily be peer reviewed. They'll have you'll have an editor that'll look over them, but that's the extent of it. And then one other thing that I'll mention is there another low stakes opportunity is the edited collection. So to contribute chapters to an edited collection where you'll usually have not an anonymous peer review, but there will be some sort of peer review process involved where the volume editor will provide you with some feedback on your chapter so that you can receive feedback from somebody other than your dissertation committee for something that's sort of an, an alone standing essay rather than a chapter to your, for your dissertation. And then once you get that experience under your belt, now that might not count as the peer-reviewed essay that you need to have on your 
resume, but it's another opportunity to sort of get a feel for how the process works, learn how to deal with feedback that can sometimes be harsh that you get from other people, although it'll likely be less harsh if it's not anonymous. And if the volume editor has an interest in including your material in their book, they will be kind in their feedback, uh, hopefully, most likely. And so that I think is a very good way to start working on the more long form essay that, you know, that will get you on the way on the right path to your journal article. Yeah, I actually ended up doing quite a few encyclopedia entries. Um, I think I might have eight or 10. Because oh, wow. I, yeah, you know, like I told you, <laughs> I actually, one of them is really interesting. It's a social sciences encyclopedia of war. I, oh, interesting. I, yeah, it was. And it was very beneficial to me in the sense that I got really, as you said, I got really positive feedback. And actually, I think because I was an English major writing for a social sciences encyclopedia, the feedback I got from the editor was like, quote, I wish all of the entries were written as well as yours. And that felt really good to me because after having some misses, it's nice to hear sometimes that you're writing well. And like you said, it's a good practice. I discovered that I'm much better at writing shorter things because I do have a tendency to be long-winded in my writing. So that idea of practicing concision became really important to me. The idea of being able to like put everything into whatever, a thousand word entry or whatnot. And so while those don't really count per se, they helped build my confidence in myself. But I think they also add a little bit of credibility. And I think it's really neat to add those things to like maybe my online presence. I share them with students to say, you know, I'm pretty well versed in a lot of different genres of writing. And how is this different than writing the essay? I have some experience writing those in those edited collections as well. And later on, I can talk a little bit about my experience as serving as an editor. But I agree with you that those two sort of helped me shift the thinking about my writing, because as you mentioned, once you submit that abstract and if they like your project, typically they are going to work with you. And that's, this is when I'm thinking, when I talked about not knowing how to interpret feedback, you know, in my master's degree, when I got the feedback from the editors, it was pretty clear and it made sense, but I had to be thoughtful about it. And I learned from that first time that I need to take my time with this. Don't rush through this just to get it done really sit and think about it and work with it. And um, I have to be honest, I had a journal out there that I received some peer review feedback on. And I actually let that sit for over a year because this, this happened while I was in dissertation process mode. And I just let it sit by the wayside. And then I defended and was done. And I had a summer free. And I was like, I don't know, that's a really long time. But I'm like, whatever, they'll just think I really, I really did uh, a great job. And I did and it's published. And it's just kind of it's really kind of funny that um, that that's one of the ones that I actually ended up getting published. But it sat there for over a year, but I was able to do such a fine job. And I really, because it was a slow summer, I wasn't teaching. I could just go in every day and just do these really mindful edits and really think about it. And I was really proud of that one because I was like, I know this is awesome. Like, I know what they asked me to do. I know it's really good. And I'm sending it to them and I know they're going to accept it. And they did. And I'm not saying that to be like braggardly. I just knew that it was good. I knew I did what they said. So I think all of those sort of smaller projects can be really helpful. I did want to talk a little bit about open source journals because we were told that that might be another place and space for people kind of newer to the program to sort of build confidence. So, I mean, there are a lot of myths out there about open access or open source journals, but one being that they're not peer reviewed. Uh, many are actually peer reviewed and some are also considered high impact journals because that they are accessible to so many readers. So you do get a lot of people clicking through those articles. Once your submission is accepted and has been reviewed and edited, you get to see it published a lot sooner than you would through the traditional route. We're not slowed down by the mechanisms of the traditional printing press. So there's less production time involved. So they can be another way to kind of get your work out there and share it, but just make sure that you're looking at the reputation of the journal. Make sure it is in fact something that's held credible by those in your field. I have also received different emails and different invitations. I would call them predatory publishers that I just want to put this out there. 
you should not be paying someone to publish your work. They, if anything, should be paying you. We know that doesn't really happen. But right. I'm saying, you know, you you should never have to pay someone to put your work out there because I am on some of these PhD support groups um, on social media and people have actually had questions about this. Like, is this legit? And I'm like, well, no, not really. I think they call those like vanity presses sometimes. Like, sure, it will get published and sometimes they even look nice, but you shouldn't have to pay for that, right? So I don't know as much about open source journals. I know I do have a piece out there for one. This again happened. So after my master's second year, second semester, I did submit something to an open source journal. It is out there somewhere. And I stand by that work. It's not like my most um, stunning accomplishment but it was kind of neat to see that article up online to kind of move from there to my PhD program. So again, it's a confidence builder. It's still fun to get your ideas out there. Do you have any other thoughts on the open source journal? I know they were mentioned in graduate school. Like, do you uh, have any pros or cons for those either way? I would agree with looking for whether or not something is peer reviewed when it comes to open source. I know that there are some open source journals that are peer reviewed and I would emphasize the importance of that. If you want it to be considered for a job application or a tenure case or anything like that. If there are, you know, things that you are just doing on the side that you're just doing for fun and you don't care, then that's a different situation. But if there is the issue of building the CV and making a strong case for yourself, I would always urge to have the peer review built in, especially if you don't know who's looking at the resume or the, the CV. So if you are already in a tenure track program, then you can find out what the requirements are of your particular institution. And then that will be helpful too in making that decision. But if you are still sort of out from that and you, and you don't know exactly who you're going to be dealing with and who's going to be looking at your resume, I would shy away from open source journals that don't have a peer review process built in. And in terms of paying, I would agree with what you were saying. You probably don't want to pay somebody to put your work out there. And again, that's also with regards to what you're, how you want to build your resume. I, and I, I tried to be mindful of some of those steps, but I just also, once I was already hired in at the sort of career slash community college level, I've kind of just had fun with publishing because there isn't an emphasis for me to publish. I mean, of course, it's helpful because we have like rankings now and that always looks good that I'm still involved in the conversation, but I don't have to be as choosy about these things because I'm not in a tenor track position. Like whatever I'm doing right now is like extra, right? It's just me being involved and doing it for the sake of liking to be creative um, and my sort of love and passion for the field. Another thing that I did and I was sort of curious about too is sometimes when you go to a conference, they publish conference proceedings and publications. Um, I did go to one overseas in Oxford, which was a really interesting conference on childhood. And they had us produce a snapshot of the proceedings. And so they didn't want us to like clean up our essays. They just wanted to sort of share our work as it was. And that made me really uncomfortable and nervous because it was still just a digital journal, but I didn't like how that felt. And I don't know actually if that ever came into fruition because I did all this work to format it and it kind of fell by the wayside. And so it seemed like a lot of time wasted. Um, and I just didn't like that idea of like putting out my conference notes. It seemed a little odd to me as well. So I think as academics and as intellectuals, we can kind of always tell when something doesn't seem quite right. Uh, just a quick word on conference proceedings and conference panels. Uh, the conference proceedings are, yeah, I don't, I can't say much about those, but I do know that conference panels can be a really, really great place to start a very interesting and compelling edited collection. Like you usually have some sort of a topic, some sort of a theme, and you're coming at it from already three to four very, very different angles. And then if, you know, if you can start a conversation with your co-panelists, you're usually probably not going to be in the same institution. So you have sort of that variety there. And then to start that conversation, a lot of times the people in the panel will know, each will know two or three other people that are also working in this particular area that might be able to contribute another chapter. And boom, you have a great start to an edited collection. So if people are interested in using conference papers as starting points, I would always recommend that. That's a great place to start. There's lots of publishers out there that will um, snag those books. However, you do have to develop those chapters. 
just taking the conference presentation, I don't know how fruitful that is for anyone because it's just reading an essay is not the same thing as listening to somebody present something. And I don't know that you can just take that same text and present it in different in a different way for a different target audience and and not make any changes to the text. That's that strikes me as odd too. So yeah, you'd anyway, have to do that. No, that you'd have to do that. And I think that's really smart. And I've actually done it the other way as well, because I had something that was already written as like an essay slash chapter format. And then I it's like almost easier for me to then take that and pull little key pieces of information and kind of just talk about it. But then I have to say, is that really is that really the best way to spend my time either? Like the thing was already done. Why am I now taking this to a conference other than I just really like talking about subject A and I think it's really fun. And um, so you really wanted to go to that particular conference. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, well, I have something this would fit something I can kind of like pull from my dissertation that I was already working on just so it's a little less stressful. So I have done that. And that's a really great way of thinking about conferences. I, I think that's really smart and trying to network and think about working with with those people on your panel, we do have to be a little bit more proactive with that sometimes. I know that was a challenge for me because I know everyone thinks I come across as all like extroverted and happy-go-lucky, but I still have sort of that inner core of like feeling like the nerdy outcast. So it's really hard for me sometimes at a conference to just like chat someone up and try to like think about hey, do you want to do an edited collection? But that would be a really smart space to do that. And I have not done that yet. So I'm going to take you up on that if and when I ever go back to like going to a conference. Right. You talked about last week, you were talking about asking your advisor to be your advisor and how it almost felt like asking someone out on a date. Um, I feel the same way about this. So like, it's awkward, you know, like, hey, I, I really like your research. So something that I was really interested about, and I don't think I asked you so much about while you were doing it, was that for our listeners, you did have some really awesome experiences in editing at many different levels and many different sort of forms. She's had two really great jobs while we were in graduate school. I thought it'd be really interesting to sort of talk to us a little bit about how did that work out? So this was a handbook series. It was a series of 10 handbooks gender was the broad subject and each volume had a more specific focus some of some of the topics that we had were like included laughter nature matter time space those were sort of the volume topics and then for each of the volumes we had uh 15 to 20 chapters that explored these different topics plus gender from different wow. perspectives yes it was excellent it was a really great project it was really fun to work on and our advisor was the series editor on the handbook series and so i was i had a graduate assistantship and was working at as her assistant which entailed reviewing all of the chapters and then giving feedback on all of the chapters ranging from developmental edits to sort of more uh, more line editing although I wasn't supposed technically supposed to do a whole lot of that. So I read all of these chapters and then there was one chapter that fell through that happened to be in my subject area. There was the chapter on motherhood fell through for one of the volumes. And so I was assigned that one, which was a really exciting opportunity. Again, just very similar to an insight to the encyclopedia, just a little bit longer, more extensive, more um, engagement with, with the research, with the text that I was summarizing and putting together. And then the other opportunity that came up that was really exciting and interesting again, and this is sort of, it was, it was a little bit luck of the draw for me because I was in this situation. Um, and we received a chapter from a German scholar that was really excellent content wise, but she was having a hard time expressing her ideas in English. And so we asked her to actually submit it in German. And then I was tasked with translating the chapter. So that was a whole uh, different task and challenge. And it took me a long time. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And being a native speaker, I actually also struggled with sort of bringing all of the nuances into English in a, in a way that was adequate for the English language and, and American writing style and guidelines and whatnot. So all of the European languages, they tend to have longer sentences just because they can because of the way that the languages work grammatically. And so American guidelines are just usually 
there's a lot of push for clarity, concision, those kinds of things. That's those are not necessarily prevalent in um, European writing conventions. And so there was a lot of adjustment that had to happen even after I did my translation. Um, and so that was a longer process that was really interesting and exciting. And so, yeah, those are some of the some of the things that I have to my name that show up on my CV. That's awesome. I didn't know about that translation. That sounds amazing. And that might be an opportunity for other folks out there that are bilingual, right? Like I wouldn't even be able to do that, obviously. I mean, that would be a special skill if you are someone that's working in academia and you're bilingual. But what a challenge, right, to take. It's not like it just this, you know, you're doing something like really simple. I'm sure it was a complex and complicated piece of writing. And then to try to have to make that genre switch or like to translate from one to the other, I think would definitely be an interesting exercise. And you said it took you a pretty long while. I spent a lot more time on it than I thought I would. Yeah, I didn't have it was on a tight deadline. I think I spent like two weeks on it or something like that. But it was Uh. two weeks of not doing much else. Yeah. (laughs) When you were going through and providing notes and feedback for the writers, was there anything that struck you? Because I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about my own experiences serving as an editor of a collection of essays and what that was like. But did you learn anything or did it teach you anything about your own writing when you were looking at these handbook writers? I assume there were scholars across the disciplines in some ways, right? And did you pick anything up? Did it make you realize anything about your own writing clarity and how well you write? Was there anything that you found useful that might be useful to our listeners, but just that you picked up from that editing and sending and communicating with writers? Like anything that you think would be worth sharing with our listeners? Oh, that's a really big question. Um. <laughs> it is. It is. And it was a big uh, project. So we're talking about, like you said, 10 books, right? Times. Right. Yeah, How it was like 250 writers? chapters, probably somewhere between 250 and, and, and 400 chapters. I don't. Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm not exact. I don't exactly remember the number, but it was a lot of chapters. One of my biggest takeaways from writing the dissertation, getting feedback, and then also giving feedback to other people is write what you mean and mean what you write. You have to be able to go back into your sentences and pick it apart and make sure that each word that's there is actually there for a reason because somebody, your reader, might point at that word and be like, why is that there? This is also something that I learned a lot from the feedback that I got in my dissertation writing process where, you know, our advisor would leave a note on the side and say, why is this word here? And then I would have to go back and be like, well, actually, that's not actually what I mean. And so then I would have to revise. And that is important because you know, looking, reading all of these chapters has really helped me think about my own writing from the reader's perspective. And I think that's an important thing that sort of goes together with this line of say what you mean and mean what you say. Think about your text from the perspective of the reader. What do they see? What are the words that they see? Do the words like make sense the way that you're lining them up in your sentence? Is it clear to the reader? Is it explicit? Don't ever leave anything up to your reader to conclude. That's something that I have to discuss with my authors now sometimes too. And I think that goes for all types of writing. That goes for argumentative essays and that goes for synthesizing materials that handbook chapters and encyclopedias have. Does that that all that all rings a bell to me. <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> we're so close to our subject matter that it can be hard to see some yes. of those lapses. We are yes. so passionate. Like, well, I know this about Carson McCullers because, you know, I've read all of her short stories. I've read her novels, her novellas. I know what I mean. But sometimes there's that gap between the writer and the reader, like you're suggesting. And I do tell my students that because they might be writing about something that's near and dear to them. The subject that comes to mind, which will crack you up, is goal line technology for one of my students that was writing about <laughs> soccer. And he was totally passionate, you know, and I believe he was yeah. a European student. He was all about it. But I'm like, look, I, I'm your reader right now. I, I'm not, I don't follow. You have to add a little bit here. Help me get from point A to point B. What exactly are you talking about? Because, you know, and that is something that we tell our students a lot, but it's true still when someone has a PhD, because sometimes they bandy around words and terms that, you know, well, right, it's really common in the humanities lexicon, but is a different reader going to be able to understand and follow you from 
this point of your argument to the next. And I think that's really a great way of thinking about writing as well, that you have to make sure that all the points are connected, help your reader see, remind them. I mean, our advisor sort of talked to me about that as well. It's just like every paragraph you need to kind of keep reminding your reader, what is your main point after all? And keep kind of circling back to that main idea. I think I struggle with that still sometimes because I know what I mean in my mind doesn't always stand out in my writing. And I think that sometimes has to do with underestimating our expertise too, or this idea of the imposter syndrome comes back to haunt us, I think, because we have to understand that we do know things that other people might not know. And I think sometimes when we're keeping things between the lines, we assume that that's so obvious that we don't want to bore our reader with it, or we don't want to make our reader feel like we underestimate their expertise. No, there's there might be a lot of things, especially when you're writing a dissertation, just this idea that you really do know that subject matter better than anyone else. So you have to take your reader by the hand every step of the way because you cannot rely on them to have that same knowledge that you have. And that's okay. And that's and that's fine. That's really good advice as well. And I struggle with the same thing too, where like, well, Duh, everyone knows this. No, actually they don't. And that was a note or feedback, like, please explain what you mean here. And I'm like, well, I I guess I just, I didn't realize that this was highly specialized information. I just assumed <laughs> that, you know, that's really common knowledge to a lot of folks and it, it's not necessarily. So I think considering audience is really important. And that sort of like leads me to something I was thinking about too, which is I did serve as one of those editors of an edited collection and just being mindful of who the audience is for the book, but then some really simple things that I know sound so ridiculous, but are elusive. If there is a style sheet and style guide, make sure before a person submits their essay, their book chapter, that they are familiarized with it and they follow that. I would say 75% of my work as this editor for that collection was just correcting people so that we're using Chicago style of formatting. Okay. This is what it is. Here's the, here's the guidelines. Here's what I need you to do. And it was funny because I feel like it mirrored my experiences with students in some ways, but I will be perfectly honest. Um, one of the journal articles that I submitted one time, and I don't know what I was thinking, it did end up getting published, but I submitted it in MLA style. And then I went back and looked and it said, we use Harvard style of referencing. And, Yay. you know, and, and so I got a note, this was a revise and resubmit. And they were like, where are your citations? Well, I had citations in the MLA way, but they weren't clear to them because I wasn't using Harvard. And I thought that was a real rookie mistake for everyone that's listening, right? Go to the journal's webpage. They usually have editorial guidelines quote, for authors, you know, read all that stuff first. I mean, maybe that's just obvious to everyone else, but I thought, wow, what a miss. Oh, no, it is not. Okay. (laughs) I thought, I thought, I can't believe I did that. I'm so embarrassed. And I went back and I was not as familiar with Harvard referencing, but of course I just went to some library websites from some universities and looked that up. A lot of times journals will actually let you submit the initial draft in whatever, whatever citation style you have used, but then you need to be prepared if it does get accepted for whenever you submit your final manuscripts, that needs to be in the proper style. And there's just no way around that. Nobody is going to do that for you. Uh, if you don't want to do it yourself, you have to hire somebody. Like that's just, that's just how it is. Um, and I, yeah. And I think to think about how you're presenting yourself, it does make sense to do it with the initial draft. It's, it can be frustrating and you might not want to do it, especially if you're not sure if the paper is going to get accepted and it's a, it's a good amount of work, but it's not an endless amount of work. So definitely, you know, consider that and, and work through it so that you can submit in the style that they use. It makes sense too. another publication I submitted to um, actually one was Australian and one was British. And so I had to go through and this was really this was a challenge for me. But I, I was like, if it's the difference between getting published and not getting published, I just have to do it. I had to go through and you know, there's American versions of words and then there's the British spelling and the Australian kind of echoes the British. And so I just did it, you know, and I remember the one, it was actually a seminar essay, a long essay too. So I had to cut it from like 40 pages down to 20, which is another story for another day. (laughs) But not only that, I, I had to move, I had to move from MLA to Chicago and Chicago is a little different if you're going from MLA because it's like footnotes and all that. And I I actually really like the way it looks um, when it's published. I really like how clean it is. 
But that was hard. And then I had to change all the spellings from the Americanized to the British versions. And so I did it, you know, when it's published and it was work. It was it was a lot of work. But to me, I was like, okay, this can be a peer reviewed journal. And that was something that came from a seminar paper. Was it my best essay ever? No, but it was out there. I could check that off my list that I had that done kind of um, before the dissertation was defended. So I think considering all that, it's just always putting your best foot forward. This is something that we talk to our students about all the time, at least in my field, is like, you might as well eliminate some of that because, you know, if the formatting's all wrong, I don't even really want to look at the essay, to be honest. I'm just kind of like, wow, they couldn't even get that right. Gosh, you know, so I would assume it could be the same from the acquisitions editor point of view or from the editorial managing editor point of view, that kind of thing. Like, wow, I don't even know if I want to dive into this because it just looks so off as far as formatting. I think we've done a good job kind of talking about the different types of journals and publications. Um, Before we sort of sign out today, you had a really cool grid that you had designed. And I just wondered if you could talk just maybe for a minute about that. And maybe we could even share that for our listeners to sort of look at, because again, this is a very organized approach. Um, Would you mind talking just a little bit about that before we close off today? So when I was working on some of these different publications and was looking into publishing for academia, I had come across the advice that it makes sense to have multiple projects going on at the same time in the various different stages that a project goes through. So if you break up your writing process into the different stages of sort of starting with main idea, the general sense of like, oh, I could write about this to then creating an abstract for yourself or to submit to somebody to have it accepted to the research stage. And then for me, I'm an outliner. So I do my research and then I write the outline and then I write my draft from there. So that would be the next stage. Then to have a submission and work on revisions and then have something in production because that usually also requires more work, right? If you get proofs or if something is copy edited, those are that's more work. So if uh, so, in an ideal world, um, you could have four or five different projects going on at the same time to ha- have each of them be at a different stage in the process. So once your first project goes into production and is maybe being typeset or copy edited, that would be a good time to already have two or three other ones going on, you know, where you've submitted a draft or where you've submitted an an abstract and you're waiting to hear back if somebody is interested in the work. And then you always want to have like one or two ideas sort of like floating around so that if something comes up, you can start a folder on your computer that you can move things in that you want to look at later once, once you actually get to like your research part or your outline part. And so I just came up with this sort of grid where I would mark off each stage in the process so that I could easily see, okay, I have one at proposal stage right now. I have one where I have submitted a draft and I'm waiting on feedback. And I have one that's currently being copy edited um, to give me sort of a good feel for what how I'm spread across these different stages in the writing process and when it's time to start opening that folder that I've saved all of my ideas in and start working on the new project and start working, throwing together those new ideas, if that makes sense. It does. And you've inspired me because I just got the email from something, the last stage, the bio, right? And so you always feel like you're done and you're like, no, I'm still not done. Not another, you know, it's funny with these projects because it's like, okay, here's our notes. Two months later, okay, here's the second set of notes based on those revisions. Three months later, okay, now we're in the copy editing stages. Um, Please see how you feel about this. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Well, now we need the bio and, you know, just that kind of thing. So it feels like it's an ongoing process. I think you're inspiring me. I had a couple of things and now they've come into fruition. So it's probably time for me to start thinking about this. But because I do work in this heavy uh, teaching oriented role, I probably will be saving that folder maybe until spring or summer so I can talk a little bit more about then. Um, Thanks so much, Judith, for sharing your expertise. I think this is really useful because you have such a great background from the other side of things. Like you can come from this as a writer, but also from the editing point of view. And I'm really excited about this episode. I hope it will be useful to our listeners. In the meantime, we are appreciating all the feedback and comments. And I always have you to to sort of speak to our Instagram address and handle where can they find us there and where can they find us if they want to contact us via Gmail. 
Yes, we are on Instagram as PhD in Parenting, where we're sharing usually some updates about the episodes and a couple of questions uh, throughout the week if we can. And then if you want to send us an email, any questions, comments, concerns that you have, feel free to shoot us a message at phdinparentingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And thanks for listening. Until next time.